Well, it is a pleasure to be with you all as we continue to prepare ourselves in this season of Advent and get ready to celebrate the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. As we do that, we continue in our series that we began just last week in discussing a variety of gifts that are given to us as a result of Jesus Christ. Last week, we looked at the doctrine and the gift of justification. This morning, we consider the glorious gift of adoption. As we begin, I ask that you turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. We'll be spending the bulk of our time in Romans 8. And so as we begin our time this morning, I would like us to read our text, Romans 8, beginning in verse 14 and reading through verse 17. If you would stand with me, I know you just sat, but if you would stand with me again for a moment, out of reverence for the word of God, we'll read Romans 8, 14 through 17. There Paul writes these words. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. This is the word of God. Please be seated. Have you ever seen the 1982 movie Annie? It's a weird question and a weird transition out of reading the Word of God asking about an outdated movie that I never even really liked. But stick with me. Annie was a musical that came out in 1982. And for those of you who are unfamiliar with the story, it, it tells the tale of young orphan Annie, this lovable, fiery child who is gracious and kind and funny and who gradually wins over the hearts of everyone that meets her. The problem for Annie is that she lives under the harsh rule in a despicable orphanage where she is mistreated. And so Annie, of course, lives her life hoping for the day of being rescued by the parents that she insists are still alive. Throughout the course of the movie, as she wins people over and through a little bit of luck, spoiler alert here, but I'm about to tell you the ending, Annie does in fact find her happy ending for in the end, this orphan, this lovable girl, is finally adopted, and not just adopted by anyone, but by the millionaire, Daddy Warbucks. And so she leaves that despicable orphanage and is brought into this new place, this new great life. It is a movie perhaps not all of you have seen. I'll admit, referencing a movie that came out the year before I was born is a weird cultural reference. But even if you've never seen the movie, you're familiar with that basic rags-to-riches story, the idea that someone can come from nothing and eventually make it to having everything if they just have the right outlook, if they just have a little bit of luck. And I begin with that storyline, and particularly with that movie, because it mirrors so much of what we're discussing today. For as we see in texts like Romans 8, when we think of the story of our salvation... We are thinking of a story that is not simply summarized in terms of a courtroom setting, something we looked at last week. While the courtroom is a proper setting to appreciate the doctrine of justification, it doesn't quite enliven the passions of many of us, and it leaves many still wondering, 
how we can be certain that that justification will last for all eternity. That is to say, how we can be certain that we're not going to end up in that same courtroom eventually. But as we find the language of Romans 8, we understand that there's another picture of our salvation. And the second picture, the second image, is that of adoption. It's a story of, of our own lives in which we too lived in a squalid, terrible, destructive area. But yet God rescued us from that squalid place and he's brought us not simply to new life, but he's made us his own. He has adopted us as his own children and as such, not only do we have present hope today, we have an inheritance that lasts for all eternity. It is this doctrine that serves as a means of, of really allowing us to be secure in our faith, secure in the finality of Christ's work, secure in the gift of salvation. And my hope, my prayer as we unwrap and, and consider this particular adoption story today that, that our passions might again be reawakened. That we might see not simply the, the idea of a legal verdict being passed down to us as it is in justification, but we might see the story of love, a story of grace, a story that has taken us from the worst environment to something that is far greater than anything some Hollywood movie could possibly produce. With that being said, as we begin our time and before we enter into that squalid state and understand where our story begins, let us open up in prayer and we will look at our own story of adoption. Bow your heads in prayer with me as we start. Father in heaven, God, we come before you so grateful for the opportunity to sing songs of praise to you. God, the words we sang these last few minutes are such a, a testimony, Lord, to the grace you've shown us. How amazing it is that we're able to sing of the birth of your son, Jesus Christ. How amazing it is that we're able to speak about the fact that you sent your son Jesus to be born in a manger, that Jesus Christ, you took upon yourself the wrath that we deserved. How humbling it is to remember that doctrine of justification that was enacted by your blood, Jesus. But God, we confess, even as we sing those songs and consider that doctrine, we are all prone to doubt, for we live in trying times. And as we find ourselves falling back into the same old sins, the same old unwise decisions, God, we cannot help but wonder whether or not we can truly be certain of the finality of that work. And so, God, as we consider this doctrine of adoption this morning, I pray that it might be a gift to us again. Might it be a means you use, Holy Spirit, to bring security to our hearts, to give us greater confidence so that as we continue to sing those songs and as we come into this Christmas season and celebrate the birth of Jesus, we might celebrate it with more joy, more love, more appreciation than ever before, God. We praise you, God. We love you. Bless this time, we pray now, all according to your precious son, Jesus Christ's name. Amen. I'm eager to jump towards the very end of this message, for in that we can address the inheritance we're given in God, and it is a glorious picture. But if we're to truly appreciate that glorious life that we have and the reason why we can be so secure, we must begin by taking a trip back to that squalid state to that dark, sad, tragic place that every single one of us are born into by nature. We must remember, if perhaps it's been a while, how dark of a house that is that we are born into, how wicked our own character is, and how hopeless the outlook is when living life in that state. In order to really appreciate this, you can look at a number of passages in Scripture. 
But the first passage I want us to look at is back in Romans chapter 1. So if you would turn back in Romans 1. Early on in this letter, Paul is, is taking a lot of time detailing the wickedness of humanity. And in Romans chapter 1, we find a number of verses that are oftentimes read to, to help us better understand just how wicked all of us are innately. To help us better understand the internal effects of the fall. And while that is definitely part of this text, as we look at it this morning, I don't want us to think so much of the internal realities of the fall as much as I want us to consider the external reality, that is, the experience of living in a fallen world. For similar to an orphan living in a squalid orphanage, we too are born into a home that is dilapidated. We live in a home naturally that was once beautiful by the work of God, but it is falling to pieces. It is a cold, dark, loveless place. And you can see and feel that experience as you just consider the way that Paul describes its inhabitants. Describing those inhabitants and trying to imagine that experience, hear these words of Paul back in Romans 1, beginning in verse 28. There Paul, writing of the world, says, Just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. Being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of murder, strife, deceit, malice, they are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful, and although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Now we read these words and we can rightly say, observe the wickedness of humanity. Look how terrible they all are. But for the sake of appreciating the sad state that we are all born into, it's important also to consider how miserable of an environment this is to live in. How miserable it is to, to live in a world that is filled with people characterized as gossips, as envious, as murderous. To live in a home surrounded by people that are unloving, unmerciful. Surrounded by a world that, as you can see here characterized in Romans 1, is really a world of chaos. It's a world that is not running the way it's supposed to run, and as a result, it is falling to pieces. You see this dilapidated state of affairs in the world all around us today. As people are running from one passion to another, as people are speaking divisive words, speaking unloving words. As people rarely show a, a true, genuine spirit of mercy, as people continually live for themselves and themselves alone. And while, yes, certainly we are all guilty of sin that dwells within, and we'll speak of that here in a moment, we understand that the world itself is by nature a cold and dark place. It is harsh, it is unloving, and we must remember that, that while many of us have been blessed to be surrounded by, by loving people that have supported us throughout our lives, large portions of this world never understand that. Many, many, many people are raised and live their entire lives surrounded by this cold, harsh reality. This unloving, unmerciful, wicked reality. And Paul says this, this is the state into which we are born. This is the home into which you all lived outside of Christ. Not only that, but as you consider further words of Paul describing this squalid state, 
You understand, of course, that the effects of the fall are not just external, they are internal as well. And it's not just a matter of living in the presence of sinful people. You yourself are sinful. You yourself are falling to pieces. You see that similar picture painted later in Romans chapter 3. Pastor Eric read from parts of Romans 3 last week, but again there you see this this depressing, tragic image of, of what life is outside of Christ. Describing our lack of character, our wicked character, you find this summary statement in Romans 3, picking up in verse 10, where he says, there's none righteous, not even one. None who understands, none who seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become useless. There's none who does good, there's not even one. Their throat is an open grave, with their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. The path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. As we are born into the squalid state, we are not simply surrounded by sin. We're not simply surrounded by chaos. The chaos reigns within as well. And so we find ourselves doing things that that harm others. We find ourselves doing things that that harm ourselves. And try and try as we might, everything we do outside of Christ is marred by this sin. It's stained by this sin. This is a wickedness that is harmful. It's a wickedness that is utterly frustrating for it leaves the individual in that squalid state utterly hopeless, utterly unable to save themselves. You get a taste for that hopelessness that is produced in that squalid state at the conclusion of the verses we just read. Look there again at Romans 3. Having said all of these things, Paul describes this conclusion of the wickedness of the world around us and the wickedness that lies within. Romans 3, finishing out in verse 19, he says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be closed and the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes knowledge of sin. Now here Paul speaks specifically of the experience of the Jew, the individual who has a proper understanding of the law of God. That proper understanding is characterized in the life of the Jewish individual, but it is seen throughout creation as well. For if anyone, as we'll see here in a moment, comes to a a basic, even a basic understanding of how wicked the world is, of how fallen they are in themselves, anyone comes out of that understanding with, with a sense of hopelessness. Anyone in the midst of the world described here in Romans 1 and Romans 3 responds ultimately, if if they're logical, in silence. For they have no defense. They have no hope. They know they certainly cannot save themselves and they look around at the world around them and and they know that world's not going to save them. And the tragedy, the the tragic conclusion then is these these individuals, these orphaned individuals, sit in their sin, sit in their muck, sick in that dark, cold, loveless place, silent, without any hope of ever escaping. That sort of silence that Paul captures spiritually here in Romans 3 is captured in a very powerful way by the author Russell Moore. Russell Moore, an author that, that I recommend very, very highly. In his book, Adopted for Life, 
describes the doctrine of adoption. And, and part of that story, he tells his own experience of he and his wife Maria going to Russia to adopt their two sons. And as he describes the experience of entering into their son's dilapidated orphanage, we understand and we're told that the thing that bothered he and his wife the most was not the smells, although as we'll see here in a moment, those were awful, but it was the silence. It was this palpable hopelessness that hung over everything. Describing that experience, we read these words of Russell Moore. He says, The horror of the orphanage wasn't the squalor and it wasn't the stench, although we at times stifled the urge to vomit and weep. The horror was the quiet of it all. The place was more silent than a funeral home at night. I stopped and I pulled on Maria's elbow asking, why is it so quiet? The place is filled with babies. Both of us compared the stillness with the buzz and punctuated squeals that came from our church nursery back home. Here, if we listened carefully enough, we could hear babies rocking themselves back and forth, the crib slats gently bumping against the walls. These children did not cry because infants eventually learn to stop crying if no one ever responds to their calls for food, for comfort, for love. No one ever responded to these children, so they stopped. Moore describes this, this bizarre and horrific experience of entering into one of these mansions, one of these great old orphanages in Russia filled with children, and yet, as he says, it was eerily silent. The reason being is because the infants knew no better. Crying was of no benefit. They had no parents. They did not have the ability to care, to, for the people that cared for them did not have the ability to, to share enough special attention to each individual. And so the children lived the vast majority of their lives in complete silence, never stepping outside, never enjoying any close relationship with an adult simply taking care of themselves in utter silence in an unloving, unmerciful room, awaiting their eventual death. Although, of course, babies wouldn't say it in that way. It's a tragic picture. It is horrific to consider this reality as it is still true throughout so much of this world, where so many people live the entirety of their lives apart from any genuine level of concern felt by others. And while they might cry early on, while we by nature desire love, desire acceptance, after a certain point of time, you'll lose all hope. And so like these babies in the orphanage visited by Russell and Maria Moore, we live in a world that while full of noise, is spiritually silent in the hearts of many. For many, many individuals sit utterly hopeless as they look out on their conditions. And while they smile on the outside, and do their best to, to keep things together inside, they are falling apart. And they have no hope for any change. While we might not think of our own lives in this language, Paul says, this is where all of us are outside of Christ. Prior to Christ, we are all sad, tragic individuals living in a squalid state, a dilapidated home, filled with our own wickedness, and we have zero hope of ever making it out. Zero hope of ever experiencing life as it was intended to be experienced. This is who we are by nature. This is who the vast majority of people you meet throughout the week are still living. It is a sad, a dark, loveless place. 
And it is earned because we are sinful. And yet in the midst of that tragic state, in the midst of that darkness, in the midst of that silence, of course, we have this sudden shift that occurs in Romans 8. For we see that that in the midst of our sinful, squalid conditions, in steps God. And God does not simply step in as a judge, pounding a gavel, saying, okay, you're free to go. He comes in as a father and picks us up and declares us to be his own adopted children and gives us a life that is suddenly worth living, a life that is grander than anything we could ever imagine. That transition is spoken of powerfully and summarized in the passage we read earlier. In Romans 8, back in verses 14 through 15, where we see our new birth really summarized in the work of the Holy Spirit. Here in these verses, we see the Holy Spirit's work both in producing a proper fear, one that is a gift, although we might not think of it in those terms, but also the Spirit producing then this this radical level of intimacy. And in these verses, while Paul does not get into great detail, we see this This glorious, heavenly transition that takes place purely by an act of God. And we see the precious response of humanity captured there so powerfully in verse 16, where we then cry out. Or verse 15, rather. Looking to that transition, then, let us again consider the words of Paul in verses 14 through 15. We see this work of the Spirit in our new birth. There Paul says, all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption by sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Now oftentimes when we hear these verses quoted, people immediately jump to that that message, that cry in verse 15 like cry of, of Abba Father, but in order to really feel the weight of that cry, again, we must appreciate the work of the Spirit that allows that cry to happen, that, that causes that cry to be let out. The work of the Spirit, as I mentioned before, can really be seen in, in two stages in these types of verses. The first stage is this concept of, of Spirit-induced terror, Spirit-induced fear. We live in a world that to a certain extent, experiences this fear universally. That is to say, every individual must reckon with the fact that they're going to die and die relatively soon. Now, each culture deals with this fear differently. We live in a culture that, that deals with it by ignoring it. We live in a culture that obsesses over physical appearance, obsesses over the next medical step forward, and obsesses over the idea of basically keeping death at bay. But whatever culture you live in, the reality remains the same. Death is inevitable. And this naturally causes us to fear, for for we by nature don't know what's going to happen. We, We have a feeling of impending judgment, but we're not certain what comes next. But this is not necessarily the fear that that enslaves people as it is spoken of here in Romans 8. It isn't the fear that is gifted by the Holy Spirit. The second and deeper level of fear that enslaves is a fear that isn't coming in response necessarily to death, although that's part of it, but it's a fear of what comes after. It's a fear of judgment. It is at its heart a fear of justice. And it's a fear that is gained and rightly understood anytime someone is confronted with an understanding of their their basic sin, their deep sin, and they're also simultaneously confronted with the reality of a holy God. 
in that moment, left on their own, they are rightly and utterly terrified. You see this terror in a number of cases throughout Scripture. You see it in the story of Israel as they come to Mount Sinai. Many of you know the story. The Israelites, of course, experience this great moment of jubilation. As they are rescued from Egypt, they see the hand of God clearly favoring them. They see the hand of God clearly working in their exodus, not only from the land of Egypt, but from the army that that ensues, that pursues them. And these Israelites then that have no other reason or no reason but to celebrate come to Mount Sinai. But at Mount Sinai, something changes, doesn't it? What changes? Suddenly they're in the presence of God. These Israelites that were initially loving every second of it, or at least seeing nothing but reason to rejoice, suddenly are confronted with their first real sight of who this God was that rescued them from Egypt. And as they stand before that mountain, Mount Sinai, as they hear the thunder, as they see the lightning, as they see the smoke rise, as they get just the slightest taste of God's holiness, they are terrified, and they think they're about to die. And rightly so. For God says if if they touch a mountain, that's it. If they get any closer, that's the end. They must purify themselves. They must understand that I am holy and they are not. That I am completely other than them and they are my creation. That experience is not just seen in the masses of Israel. You see it even in the lives of righteous individuals. You can read the story of Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 6, being caught up and being in this vision of entering into the throne room of heaven. There in that great passage, Isaiah, this this holy, righteous prophet of God, someone who has been serving God faithfully, comes into the presence of the Almighty, and what is his response? He falls down like a dead man, and he's convinced that's it. For he says, I'm a man of unclean lips. I cannot stand in his presence. He is petrified. He is terrified. You see elements of this even carried into the New Testament. If you've been with us as we've studied through Mark, you see these glimpses of of God's power, of God's holiness, leaving audiences stunned and terrified. For oftentimes when Jesus performs any number of his miracles, when he calms the sea, when he heals someone of sickness, even when he simply speaks the law, the crowds respond not with just jubilation, although that's part of it, but they respond terrified, for they're confronted with the divine. They're confronted with an understanding that this power is much greater than theirs, that they cannot contain this, that they do not deserve to be in his presence. And so even if they cannot put it into words, those people were rightly terrified because they understood the experience of God's holiness. Well, Paul tells us in Romans and elsewhere that that as terrifying as that moment is, it is ultimately a gift of the Spirit. It's, it's a point of revelation in which God is telling us, forcibly causing us to see that, that you cannot stand in the presence of God on your own. If you read through the book of Galatians, you see Paul saying this is the effect of the law overall. As great as the law was, Paul says in Galatians, it was never intended to be the final tool, the final thing that brings you to God. It was always intended to simply keep you in line and remind you of your sin, remind you that you fall short. And indeed, if you read through the Old Testament, you see that imagery. The Israelites would have constantly seen that blood being spilled, hear the noises of the sacrificial system, and and all those things was the constant screaming message of, you don't belong here. You cannot stand in my presence on your own, for you are sinful, and I am perfect in my holiness. 
when left on our own with only that law, with only morality to trust in, we, like these people in Romans 8, are rightly enslaved to fear. For we know, at least in passing, that that we have no hope on our own, and, and so we hope to simply do enough good, but still that law enslaves us. Again, we might not see this as a gift, but it is. For so many people, and you look around us at the world today, so many people live their lives as if they are good enough, as if they can please God, but, but the Spirit comes in and says, no, you can do nothing. And so the Spirit produces this fear that can enslave, but thanks be to God that he does not leave us in that spiritual state of fear, although God, of course, had every right to do that. God has every right to enslave you and rule you over in fear, but he doesn't do that. For shockingly, as Paul says, we have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear, but we've received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. This second work of the Spirit then is the Spirit-induced intimacy. It is sonship. It is the work of adoption. Now, we looked a little bit of how God brings this salvation into being that is the means of our adoption last week we looked at how christ's blood atones for our sins by his death burial and resurrection the wrath of god that we deserve is taken from us if we simply believe in jesus but as paul references here and as we read throughout all of scripture our salvation is not just a work of jesus for if jesus just did what he did we would still be blind we would still not understand we need this, the secondary work of the Spirit just as much. And we are told in Scripture that this is the work of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes in and he allows us to understand these truths. We are told back in John that the work of the Spirit is essential in our own adoption, essential in our own birth. Here are the words of Jesus Christ in John chapter 3, beginning in verse 5. Jesus answers Nicodemus, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. We must appreciate the fact that if, if Jesus Christ simply came and died on the cross and then left it up to us to hear of that gospel, to accept that gospel and believe, we would all still be rotting away in some distant orphanage. We would all still be in just as cold and loveless of a place. But Jesus says the Holy Spirit comes in. The Holy Spirit goes where he wishes. The Holy Spirit opens your eyes to see. The Holy Spirit opens your ears to hear. The Holy Spirit suddenly makes the gospel something that is beautiful. He causes you to understand and he effectually brings you into the grace of God. And as he does so, as he draws you in, we are told by his work and of course the joining work of God the Father and God the Son, we are made not simply followers of Jesus, but we are adopted as sons it is this adoption that makes this latter cry that we'll look at here in a moment possible. We cry out to God not because we're mere servants. We cry out to God because we are his children. And if you've spent much time in church, perhaps this language 
can easily be shrugged off, for it is familiar to us all. God's our Father, we're his children, right? Uh, God cares for us, God loves us, and we can speak of these things in passing as if, oh yeah, everyone knows that. But this is shocking. This level of intimacy is unheard of in just about any other faith you could possibly study, and yet this intimacy is something that's hinted at throughout the pages of the Old Testament, and it's totally fulfilled in Christ. And in that fulfillment, we we should not ever slough it off or shrug it off as if it is something anything less than awe-inspiring. You can see echoes of it in the Old Testament. For in the Old Testament, you do have language in which God describes his people as, as his servants. God reigns as their king. But beyond that, you have other pictures of relationships that God gives in his revelation. And in a way, again, that we can completely ignore at times, God... God in various passages speaks of the fact that, that he is their God. They are his people. He speaks of his people in the way that a loving husband loves his bride, loves his wife. You see God speaking of himself as a parent. In passing, you have these glimpses in which God is telling the Israelites time and time again of his love, of his affection. And yet as clear it is, as it is through the Old Testament, it seems obvious that the people of God didn't ever really grasp it. They couldn't understand why God was so hurt by their sin. They couldn't understand why God was so offended because then God was just some distant king. But time and time again, God reveals it's more than this. There's more affection. There's a nearness that is hinted at and then a nearness that is fully experienced in the coming of Jesus Christ. For the coming of Jesus Christ, we read passages like John 1.12 in which we're reminded just in passing that those who believe he gave the right to become sons of God. Throughout the ministry of Christ, we see Jesus interacting in a way that is far more tender than just a distant king speaking to a servant. We see Jesus raising up a little girl from the dead and tenderly loving her in the way that, that a father wakes up and cares for his child. We see Jesus lovingly reaching out and touching these, these otherwise anonymous, worthless figures. And why does he do that? He, he does it because he loves as a parent. He loves as a father. And the constant message in the New Testament is if you place your faith in Jesus, you're not simply given another chance at freedom. You are adopted. You are declared to be a genuine child of God. That is a glorious thought. One that we could never possibly appreciate enough. And yet one that is clearly captured in this passage. One that is affected by the Holy Spirit who relieves us of our fear. Who is able to relieve us of any doubt. Who is able to bring us out of that cold, dark home and remove that cold, dark heart that is dead within us and give us new life. And as he does this, as the Spirit works out, we see the evidence of its result in man's instinctual response. Again, you see that response for as we go through this life, as a result of having the Spirit of adoption, we as saved man cry out, Abba, Father. Here, this response again is unfathomable, it's incredible. For it is not simply instinctual, that is to say it rises up within us, but it's amazing in its, its familial language. 
As many of you know, the, the word here, Abba, this language, Father, is a personal name that we're addressing God with. When you cry out, Abba, Father, you're calling the almighty creator of the universe by the same name that Jesus Christ calls out in the Garden of Gethsemane. The same name. And not because you're quoting some passage, but because you have direct access to him. God the Father hears you just as clearly as he heard his son crying out in the Garden of Gethsemane. Just as clearly. Just as quickly. You call out to him in this familiar way. And you do so because you're a child of his. You do so because this is what a child does. And as you do so, you're, you're crying out not just as a means of of practicing your doctrine, you're, you're crying out for deliverance. This cry is not, again, just some basic statement. This is not us going before, the God, going before God, going before a king with our head down, saying, uh, God, please give me a, a good meal today. Please keep me safe. Uh, amen, thank you, and walking out of the courtroom. This is a child overwhelmed by the darkness and struggles of the world around them. And this is a child who has fallen da- down and feels utterly hopeless in the midst of that darkness. And their instinct is to immediately cry out to their father. And they cry out, why? Because they know their father hears and their father can deliver them. Again, you consider the cry of Christ. Why does he cry out to God? Because he's crying out, understanding the execution that awaits him. He's crying out, praying, if this is not your will, please take this from me. Father, but not my will, but your will be done. As strange, as shocking as it is, when we cry out, we do the same. And I trust that that if you are in Christ here this morning, you've experienced this cry at least to some extent. For any time we feel overwhelmed, this ought to be our response. I, I can think in my own life of various trials I've suffered through. I love by my own personality to try to explain everything away and and quote a few passages here and explain everything in a logical fashion. You can imagine that Jamie must love dealing with me in a time of trial. But I can think one particular time that was overwhelming. I can remember years ago, my wife and I suffering through a miscarriage. And at the time, we were in separate states. I was actually here in Missouri leading a short-term mission trip with New Tribes Mission, uh, or for New Tribes Mission, with a group of students. And I can remember very distinctly getting that call from my wife, letting me know. And I had known that there had been trouble with the pregnancy, and so, of course, up to that point, we were praying for God to sovereignly save our child. And rightly so, that is what we pray. And in any other circumstance, if someone else came up to me and said, "Uh, Ben, I'm going through this trial, I'm going through this tribulation, I would so easily be able to quote a verse and say, hey, God works out everything for the good of those who love him as we so often do, coldly quote some passage and and have a logical response. But of course, when I got that call, a logical walkthrough, a logical exposition of Romans 8 was the last thing on my mind. For I didn't understand. I didn't understand why God would do that. And as much as it confused me, while I could not explain it, while I could not explain it to anyone the one thing I did was cry out to God. I wept before God and asked God to take me from this, asked God to give us comfort. 
I did not speak with some great theology. I did not speak in an articulate manner, quoting this passage or that passage. I just cried out to God. And I did so in all comfort and confidence because while I could not understand the present circumstance, I knew who my God was. I knew I was his son and so I knew that I was going to him in the same way that my own child could come to me in a time of trial. So frequently I fear in the church we look at something like this, something so emotional, something so out of control and we can demean this experience. We say, oh no, the, the true child of God, the, the true one is who his disciple is able to respond in this even manner throughout life. And they keep a smile on their face and they say, yeah, everything's great. Oh, life's tough, but you know, God will work it out. But that's not what a child does. We need to appreciate the fact that this crying out to God is a necessary experience for every child. We must not demean it. We must look at it as a great gift. And so we... As we face trials, must be quick to cry out to God, and we must encourage our brothers and sisters to do the same. For we, again, are not seeking simply to please God as some distant servant. We come before God as his child, day in and day out. And so we cry out to him for deliverance. We cry out to him for growth. Praise be to God for the fact that he hears this. Praise be to God that this is the picture of our salvation that at the point of adoption, God enters in the, sto- the, the room of, of that orphanage that he picks us up and that he carries us out. But thanks be to God that the picture of adoption doesn't stop there, as glorious as that is, as amazing as it would be for God to just pick us up and take us out of that orphanage and say, all right, here's your second chance. As glorious as that is, it falls so far short of the doctrine of adoption in Romans. For as we carry on, we see the, the glorious life summarized by this concept of inheritance. There in verse 16 and 17, again, we read, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God and of children heirs also. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. If you want to know why you can be absolutely 100% certain of your salvation, look no further than Romans 8, 16, and 17. For Paul says our gift in Christ does not end at the moment of adoption. This gift carries on throughout all eternity and is guaranteed because we again are not simply servants. We are adopted as children, and as children, we have an inheritance. Now, depending on your own financial situation... The concept of of leaving an inheritance might be a distant dream. And so this language perhaps is easily lost, but but you can appreciate it as it is demonstrated here. For as Paul says, this inheritance, this idea of a future promise, is not simply from someone who is financially well off. This promise, this glory, is from the Almighty, from a loving Father who takes care of us and who will continue to take care of us. As you read throughout all of scripture, you understand that the benefits of this inheritance are numerous. On this side of eternity, this inheritance means we experience immediate peace with God. Again, immediate access to the creator of the universe. You you can speak to him directly through the son, Jesus Christ. That's, That's incredible. Not only that, but the word of God assures us that this inheritance also presently means ongoing growth. For God loves us as a loving father, so he's not going to save us and then cast us aside and say, all right, well, I'll see you when you get to heaven. 
No, God is preparing us daily for that kingdom. Daily making us more and more into the image of his son so that when we get there, we belong. We fit right in. And so while times might get difficult, while there's suffering, we understand there's a loving father behind all of it. This is why we can rejoice. This is why suffering does not mean we have lost our salvation. Time does not even permit us to address other present gifts of salvation. One of the main ones being a family in God. You read through the book of Galatians, and this is the constant refrain of Paul, that, that in Christ you are adopted and you have all these new brothers and sisters in Christ. That's incredible. In Paul's day, just as in our own day, people were constantly dividing themselves with one another. Based off of ethnicity, based off of backgrounds, based off of finances, based off of age, based off of interest, based off of whatever you name. And yet Paul says in the gospel, that's all gone. Those mean nothing. You're all brothers and sisters in Christ. You're all equal. This is why, by the way, when you hear of things like racism or the idea of wanting to separate yourself from others simply because of a different background, you're hearing of something that is utterly foolish and goes against everything we're given in Christ. Because we have been given this family, and so we ought to treat one another as we ought to treat our family. I would say we treat one another in the same way you treat your family, but maybe that's not a safe statement comparing where your family stands. But that, again, is a present gift we have in Jesus. But, of course, in this context, we understand as glorious as our new life is, the true blessing, the true assurance comes in this future inheritance where we are told time and time again that because we are children of the king, we will someday be brought into the kingdom. Because we are children of the king and have been adopted in the past, we are told later on in Romans 8, verse 23, that we groan within ourselves waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons. We groan eagerly that, that future realization. We understand that as children of God, we someday await that precious moment when upon seeing Christ face to face, we can hear, well done, my good and faithful servant, enter now into my rest. That rest is guaranteed because you're a child of the king. You're a child of the sovereign, powerful, all-loving father who loved you enough to send his son to die for you and to take his sins upon you. And so when looking at the world around us, when asking ourselves, how can we ever be certain of God's love? How can we ever be certain that I'm going to make it? The answer time and time again is because of who you are. Because of your adoption. Because you are a child of God. So it is impossible to lose. And so as tragic as life might be and as difficult as it might be to see this reality all around us, as difficult as it is when we're surrounded by a world that is still so dark, by a world that is falling apart, as difficult as it is to believe this, we can know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that despite the fact that our bodies are dying and that it looks like we still live in an orphanage, we are children of the almighty king of creation. And we will someday be in his presence. As we close this morning and consider all these truths, my prayer is that all of us might really experience this adoption. But I understand there are no doubt many of you here this morning who have not yet experienced it. 
And perhaps you are experiencing the fear that comes with understanding your impending death and judgment. Or perhaps you are still clueless to the reality that awaits you. Regardless of where you stand, my prayer for you is that God might open your eyes and that you might shake in terror in your, in your pew this morning. That you might for the first time see the sordid, disgusting state in which this world lives that you might rightly be terrified by judgment, but that you might then be awestruck by a loving Christ who awaits to take you from your home and deliver you into the kingdom. If you are here and you do not know Christ, I beg you that you consider that truth this morning. If you have any questions, need any prayers, please see me, one of our elders or pastors afterwards. For my brothers and sisters in Christ, let this passage cause our eyes to be reopened. Let us rightly appreciate the horror that surrounds us in this world. Let us rightly feel pity and empathy for the people that surround us that face such a hopeless outlook in life. Let us appreciate that struggle that we ourselves face so that we can then rightly remember and acknowledge our adoption. As we consider these truths, let us look forward with great hope to our future home knowing that it's guaranteed. And as we wait let us unashamedly cry out daily, Abba, Father, knowing that our Father hears us. And let us encourage the orphans that still surround us to cry out the same to Jesus. Let us close our time in prayer. Father in heaven, God, we praise you and we are awestruck by the fact that, that you would not only send your son, Jesus Christ, to die on our behalf, God, but that you would adopt us as your children. God, this is a reality that is almost too good to be true. For God, we all face the daily frustrations of our own sins, and it is easy to doubt the reality of our new life. But you give us this assurance time and time again that if we have put our faith in your son, that we too are adopted, we are your children, and that you will continually be at work in our lives, preparing us for our future home. Jesus, come back soon. Deliver us from this dark and sad state of affairs. Bring us into your kingdom, into our true home. But as we await for that day, God, might we daily cry out to you, Father, knowing that you hear us. God, I pray for those of you who do, those here who do not know you, Lord, I pray that, that you might open their eyes for the first time. Holy Spirit, give them that gift of terror this morning but also give them that gift of intimacy. Transition them into faith. Father, we love you and we praise you. Thank you for our time this morning, God. Might we now live out our lives as proper children of you in this dark place, God, awaiting the day of your return. It's in your precious son, Jesus Christ's name, we pray these things, amen.